This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Citizens, ce n'est pas assez d'avoir exposé de votre pays les barbes qui l'ont essanglanté depuis deux siècles. It is not enough to have expelled the barbarians who have bloodied our land for two centuries. Ce n'est pas assez d'avoir mis un frein aux factions toujours renaissantes qui se jouaient tour à tour au fantôme de liberté que la France exposait à vos yeux. It is not enough to have restrained those ever-evolving factions that one after another mocked the specter of liberty that France dangled before you. Il faut, par un dernier acte d'autorité nationale, assure à jamais l'impact de la liberté qu'on le paye qui nous avoue naître. We must, with one last act of national authority, forever assure the empire of liberty and the country of our birth. Il faut revir au gouvernement inhumain qui tient depuis longtemps nos esprits dans le topeur la plus humiliante, tout espoir de nous réasservir. We must take any hope of re-enslaving us away from the inhuman government that for so long kept us in the most humiliating torpor. Il faut au fond vivre indépendant ou mourir. In the end, we must live independent or die. Indépendance ou la mort. Que ces mots sacres nous rayons et qu'ils soient le signal des combats et de notre réunion. Independence or death. Let these sacred words unite us and be the signal of battle and of our reunion. As we've seen many times in our narrative already, dear listener, history is full of actions that then provoke reactions. This particular document was giving voice to an action that would cause a stir in various points of the world, possibly none more so than in the United States of America. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the English version of the intro quote for this episode, and I take responsibility for any errors in pronunciation in the French version of the quote. I felt it important to read this quote in its original language for reasons that you'll learn more about soon enough. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to mention our partnership with the Hero Soap Company. Given the current state of affairs, cleanliness is more important than ever, and the Hero Soap Company uses natural ingredients and essential oils to craft products that will soothe and cleanse your skin. Even better, they donate a percentage of their proceeds to charities that support veterans, first responders, and their families. By using the direct link on the website or going to Hero Soap Company, that's all one word, dot com, and using the promo code PRESIDENCIES at checkout, in addition to getting 10% off of your purchase, You'll not only help support those who have served the U.S. on the front lines, at home, and abroad, you'll also help me to offset the cost of this podcast 
ensuring that I'm able to keep going on this journey for years to come. The journey that led to the drafting of the words in our opening quote was a long and troubling one. But to understand the reaction to those words, we must turn back to a series of events in the fall of 1801, spring of 1802. We discussed in episode 2.21 the rebellion plot dubbed Gabriel's Rebellion that had been unsuccessfully set into motion in the summer of 1800 and then violently quashed, with 27 individuals killed by Virginia authorities for their role in the plot. Though, as discussed in episode 2.22, the executions were intentionally done in a public way that many in both the free and enslaved communities in the Richmond area would witness the consequences for the uprising of enslaved individuals. The death of Gabriel and his fellow freedom seekers did not quash the flames of liberty within some still held in bondage. Indeed, one of the leaders in a new plan that began to be developed in the fall of 1801 was an enslaved individual named Sancho, who historian Douglas Egerton asserts had been, quote, most likely a member of the Petersburg wing of the widespread 1800 conspiracy. There were some parallels to Gabriel's rebellion in this new plot, but unlike Gabriel, Sancho, quote, worked instead to recruit a dedicated group of followers who would raise men quickly when the time came. And the date of the beginning of the rebellion, quote, was a closely guarded secret. Egerton also noted that, quote, as for the plan itself, it was as simple as Gabriel's was complex. The small group of core conspirators would recruit as many folks as they could, then began to kill white people sometime around Easter 1802. Quote, evidently, The leaders assumed that the authorities would quickly offer concessions. Only then would the rebels formulate their final demands, which certainly would include their freedom, the right to their earnings, and an equitable distribution of property. Unfortunately, this new plot suffered from some of the same problems as Gabriel's. Namely, words started leaking out as more people got involved, and the further the news spread, the less control the conspirators had over the secret. Before long, The planned rebellion was being discussed in the enslaved community from Petersburg down to Norfolk, then crossed the state border into North Carolina. Not content to just hear about a planned rebellion in Virginia, some enslaved individuals in North Carolina began to make their own plans. Again, from Egerton, quote, Despite all the similarities and ties to Sancho's plot, the North Carolina wing of the conspiracy began to take on a life of its own. This large geography and uncontrollable network meant that, As early as December 1801, the white community was starting to get wind of this plot, and on January 1st, 1802, slave patrols in Nottoway County caught a number of enslaved individuals from the area that were involved. As with Gabriel's Rebellion, two of the leaders in the Nottoway County organization were hung, but this did not mean that the overall plot was thwarted, though several of the other enslaved individuals who had been brought into custody shared that the two leaders in that county, quote, were not the originators of the plot. As the year went on and Easter drew closer, more and more enslaved individuals in other counties who were involved in the conspiracy were captured, and white leaders started to get a sense of the scope of the plot. Word also got back to then-Governor James Monroe from the mayor of Norfolk that the plan was for the rebellion to start, quote, on the night of Easter Monday. The mayor was at first incredulous at the rumor, but he was finally convinced and gathered a patrol that rounded up more enslaved individuals. From there, the connections were traced back, and finally, Sancho and the original conspirators were brought into custody. By May 15th, most of them were hung at the gallows. This left the North Carolina end of the conspiracy. 
This group had opted against the Easter date and instead decided to rise up on June 10, 1802, which was the night of the local Baptist Association quarterly meeting. Their plan was to set the entire hamlet of Windsor on fire, then hopefully gather reinforcements to march back into Virginia to help the conspirators there. However, on June 2nd, a slave patrol searched a cabin where they found a letter, quote, containing the names of about 14 Negro men who were part of the conspiracy. Soon enough, all of them were captured, along with other enslaved individuals in neighboring counties. As Egerton wrote of the aftermath, quote, The Easter conspiracy was over, but the white fear it inspired was not. And a year and a half after the Easter conspiracy was broken up, white Americans would have even more reason to be anxious due to events taking place hundreds of miles south. When last we discussed the situation in Saint-Domingue back in episode 3.14, a new French military commander, General Rochambeau, had taken charge and, through his brutal tactics, had only succeeded in strengthening the insurgent force. The insurgents, who had taken to calling themselves the quote-unquote indigenous army, were, according to historian Laurent Dubois, quote, jointly led by a solid coalition of ex-slave and colored officers. Previously, leaders of the insurgency had drawn on the ideas of the French Revolution and had proclaimed a desire to remain a part of France. As 1803 went on, however, General Jean-Jacques Dessalines and his officers altered the French tricolor that they had previously fought under. Again, from Dubois, quote, In 1793, the tricolor had been a symbol of the unity among whites, people of color, and blacks, all joined in defense of the republic. Dessalines and his commanders, however, removed the white strip from the flag, quote, and sewed the blue and the red back together again. The message of the new flag was clear. Through their brutality, the French whites had forfeited their right to be included in the new political community being forged in the colony. Black and colored residents were united in opposition to the whites. Toussaint Louverture's dream of a multiracial republic was at an end. Dessalines was determined to lead his forces to secure a black nation. By November 1803, Rochambeau and the remainder of his troops, a few thousand left out of the 80,000 that had been sent to Hispaniola, could only claim control over the colonial capital of La Cap in the north. It was clear that Napoleon's dreams of re-establishing control over Saint-Domingue and making it a viable colony once more were also at an end. Thus, Rochambeau ordered a retreat, and his forces, along with many residents from Le Cap, set sail that November, never to return. They didn't get far, though, before they were taken into custody by British ships, one of the first victories that the British could claim since the resumption of war earlier in the year. Meanwhile, General Dessalines and his forces marched into Le Cap, a city which was, at the time, formerly known as Le Cap Francais, as a symbol of the shift of power. Dessalines ordered that it be renamed to Le Cap Hichien. Only one more thing was needed for this new nation, a declaration of independence. On the last day of 1803, Dessalines was presented with a draft of a declaration of independence, quote, written by an elderly and educated man of color, an admirer of the work of Jefferson, and his draft was modeled on the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Dessalines, however, was concerned that it didn't convey the, quote, heat and energy, that was required for this new nation. As Louis-Philippe Boiron Tonnerre, one of the young officers under his command, asserted, quote, In order to draw up our act of independence, we need the skin of a white to serve as a parchment, his skull as an inkwell, his blood for ink, and a bayonet 
for a pen. Thus, Dessalines assigned Boiron Tonnerre the task of revising the Declaration, and the result, part of which was our opening quote, was what Dessalines proclaimed the following day, New Year's Day, 1804. In addition to the Declaration of Independence, Dessalines also renamed the former colony. No longer would it be Saint-Domingue. From now on, drawing on the history of the island and what was reputed to be the name given to it by the original Taino inhabitants, Dessalines proclaimed the new nation to be the nation of Haiti. One can imagine what white slave owners in the U.S. would think of this new militant black nation to the South. But at the beginning of 1804, the focus of the government in Washington, D.C. was not on Haiti, but rather on Louisiana. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio versus the world makes history fun again. A large part of President Jefferson's time at the end of 1803 was devoted to considering what the new governmental structure for Louisiana would look like. As noted by historian Dumas Malone, quote, The natural assumption by leaders in the United States was that the settlers in lower Louisiana, who had lived under despotic rule, were unprepared for self-government. Meanwhile, there was little of substance known about upper Louisiana, which was, quote, reflected in the tall tales of hunters and occasional travelers who had visited that wild region. All of this presented a problem for the president which he explained as follows in a letter written in early December 1803. Quote, Although it is acknowledged that our new fellow citizens are as yet as incapable of self-government as children, yet some cannot bring themselves to suspend its principles for a single moment. The temporary or territorial government of that country, therefore, will encounter great difficulty. Though Jefferson was not one to shy away from delving into detailed research and crafting documents, he was rather preoccupied with the position of chief executive and thus could not shut himself off to craft a constitution for the territory. Thus, he delegated the responsibility to Senator John Breckinridge, Democratic-Republican from Kentucky. Breckinridge, however, was a bit reluctant to accept this assignment. Thus, Jefferson, knowing that it needed to be done, and despite his concerns about appearing too heavy-handed in his interactions with members of the legislative branch, sent some suggestions to Breckinridge about what a new territorial government for Louisiana should look like. On December 30, 1803, Breckinridge put a bill forward in the Senate that largely drew from Jefferson's suggestions. This new plan of government called for an assembly of notables as the legislative body for the territory. The assembly would be made up, quote, of the most notable, fit, and discreet persons of the territory to be selected annually by the governor from those holding real estate therein who shall have resided one year at least in the said territory. For the judiciary, Jefferson's plan called for, quote, the right to jury trials and criminal prosecutions of capital offenses and asserted that this right should be extended to other trials by the Assembly of Notables, quote, as soon and under such modifications as the habits and state of the peoples of the territory will admit. Under the Spanish government, there had been no jury trials in the colony, so this was a step forward for the citizens of Louisiana. 
but a governor chosen by the president, a legislature chosen by the governor, and a limited judicial system was still a far cry from the full rights and privileges enjoyed by other American citizens. Meanwhile, another bill was introduced in the House which would regulate, quote, duties on imports and tonnage in Louisiana. On the surface, this was all pro forma to bring the new territory into alignment with the national systems already in place. Indeed, as noted by Malone, this bill overall, quote, appears to have attracted little or no attention in Congress at the time. However, there were two provisions that would prove to be problematic. First, the bill, quote, provided for the annexation to the Mississippi Revenue District of all the navigable waters and streams lying within the United States that entered into the Gulf of Mexico east of the Mississippi. If you look at a map of Louisiana, you'll see that New Orleans is on the east bank of the river. Then, if you follow the river up away from the delta, you'll find numerous places, including where I grew up, south of Baton Rouge, that were then part of West Florida. As recently as episode 3.18, we discussed the confusion over whether West Florida was a part of the Louisiana Purchase. This section of the bill seemed to imply that at least part of West Florida was in fact now part of the United States. Likewise, there was also a section of the bill that, quote, authorized the president, whenever he should deem such action expedient, to set up a separate revenue district centering on the Bay and River of Mobile. Surprisingly, at the time, that either of these sections of the bill that would come to be dubbed the Mobile Act attracted the attention of Spanish minister to the U.S. Erujo, and it was passed into law on February 24, 1804. Watch this space, though, dear listener, as the Spanish will have a few words to say about this bill. Before that time, another matter came up for consideration with relations to the economy of the new lands of Louisiana. Before we start this section, I want to make sure that we have a clear image in our mind. As the members of the government sent messages back and forth and debated these quote-unquote economic issues, their words and their decisions impacted people across wide geographies on both sides of the Atlantic. The people that they talked about as property were individuals enslaved and forced to labor for the profit of others. Though the words can sometimes seem sterile and placid, every time we are talking about slavery, we are talking about adults and children who faced harsh treatment and conditions, constant violations of their most basic liberties, and lives full of uncertainty and anxiety. We must never lose sight of that, or in any way lose sight of their humanity, as has been done in histories of the past. As of the 1800 census, there were 893,602 enslaved individuals in the United States. Each and every one of them deserves our respect. With that said, let us continue. As we noted in episode 1.24, slavery did exist in the Louisiana colony. In the city of New Orleans alone at the time, of the around 10,000 residents, nearly half were either free people of color or enslaved individuals. While there was little to no inclination in the government in Washington to end slavery in the new territory, especially since it was already permitted in the neighboring Mississippi Territory, as early as November 9, 1803, Jefferson wrote Secretary of State Albert Gallatin about the possibility of banning the importation of enslaved individuals, quote, except from such of the U.S. as prohibit importation. Now, there's a little explanation required about this. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1 of the Constitution reads as thus, quote, The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit 
shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person. As we discussed back in episode 1.12, prior to the invention of the cotton gin, slavery in America had been perceived by white Americans as being in a period of decline. And indeed, there were states like Virginia and Maryland where the enslaved population was growing faster than there was work for them to do. Thus, a new industry developed in those states where slave owners sold the people they enslaved to owners in other parts of the country who had plantations producing crops that were more labor-intensive or were located in harsher climates where people were more prone to disease and death. In most of the nation, the importation of enslaved people from outside the U.S. didn't make economic sense. In South Carolina, however, leaders there felt that there was money to be made through the importation of enslaved individuals through the port of Charleston. Hence, the state reopened the foreign slave trade on May 1, 1798. Though South Carolinian leaders were aware that Jefferson, as a Virginian, had a vested interest in prohibiting the slave trade as soon as possible once the 1808 deadline hit, as noted by historians Ned and Constance Sublette, the merchants in that state, quote, scurried to take maximum advantage of the time remaining. Though Jefferson, in his letter to Gallatin, had proposed limiting the domestic slave trade to just enslaved individuals from states that did not engage in the foreign slave trade, the bill that ultimately passed prohibited both the foreign and domestic slave trade. The only enslaved individuals that could be brought into Louisiana legally were those brought to the territory, quote, by citizens of the U.S. who were removing to the territory for actual settlement and were bona fide owners of the slaves imported. This prohibition would anger Creole planters in Louisiana, but as noted by Sublette and Sublette, ultimately, slave traders would find a workaround, and with the threat of direct importation through the port of New Orleans quashed, South Carolina merchants imported enslaved individuals legally, quote, then resold the Africans to Louisiana via the domestic trade. Even with a substantial markup, they could still undercut the price Virginia farmers charged for African Americans. Debates in the Senate over Breckenridge's proposals for the governance of Louisiana found opposition coming from both sides of the aisle. Senator John Quincy Adams, Federalist from Massachusetts, quote, introduced resolutions asserting that Congress had no right to impose taxes on the people of the province without their consent. Senator Thomas Worthington, Democratic-Republican from Ohio, put forward a resolution to allow for a non-voting delegate from the new territory in Congress. Adams's resolutions only garnered four votes in favor, while Worthington's was defeated by a vote of 12 for to 18 against. Meanwhile, as the debate went on, reports on the ground in Louisiana seemed to prove what Jefferson and his supporters felt. Louisiana was not ready for full-fledged self-governance. William C.C. Claiborne, acting in his role as temporary governor of the New Lands, wrote to Madison on January 2nd, asserting that, quote, If I have a political uneasiness at this moment, it arises from the great latitude of the powers with which I am temporarily entrusted. The exercise of discretionary powers in matters of moment is to me an irksome duty. I feel sensibly the weight of the responsibility which rests on me. I, however, indulge an anxious hope that Congress will soon relieve me from that difficulty. The establishment of a government for the province will, I presume, be a matter of immediate consideration and cannot be determined more speedily than I wish. 
I could wish that the government to be given to this district may be as Republican as the people can be safely entrusted with. But the principles of a popular government are illy suited to the present state of society in this province. Jefferson sent Claiborne's reports on to Congress to prove that Breckinridge's bill was the best option for the time being. Ultimately, on February 18, 1804, the Breckinridge bill passed by a vote of 20 to 5 and was sent on to the House. There, it would face a new round of opposition, at times from surprising corners. Speaker of the House Nathaniel Macon, Democratic-Republican from North Carolina, was a staunch supporter of Jefferson. However, even more important to him than his loyalty to Jefferson was his commitment to the idea of self-government. Thus, Macon put forward a motion to strike out the entire section of the Senate bill, creating a legislative council appointed by the territorial governor, and Macon's proposal was approved by the House overwhelmingly. In place of this section, the House approved a substitution which would create a similar body as the original proposal, but would limit the Legislative Council to a term of one year. At that point, the 13 seats on the Council would, quote, be elected from districts that the original Council should set up. The House was willing to give Jefferson a stopgap government, but it wanted to ensure that the stopgap was only temporary and would soon give way to representative government. When the bill came to conference to determine a compromise that both houses of Congress could live with, it was agreed that the Legislative Council would have a limited time span, but the can was kicked down the road a bit. A year after the new government came into effect on October 1st, 1804, it would expire. And by that point, the federal government would have to have a new government apparatus in place for Louisiana, or, as it would now be known, the Territory of Louisiana, encompassing Upper Louisiana, and the Territory of Orleans, which was a good chunk of what we now know of as Louisiana. It may not have been perfect, but on March 26, 1804, there was at least a temporary plan in place for organizing Louisiana. At least for the time being, that was resolved. But the new session of Congress also had to deal with another matter of unresolved business that, like with the Louisiana situation, had them venturing into unfamiliar territory. In a sign as to just how much happened in the year 1803, if you may recall, all the way back in episode 3.13, I had mentioned that the House had voted to impeach U.S. District Court Judge John Pickering, but as the vote came in March 1803 at the end of the session, it wouldn't be until the next session that the Senate could actually act on the motion. Well, no one had forgotten about that, And though matters related to Louisiana were more urgent to address first, Congress finally got to the matter of Pickering's impeachment. The House wrote out the official articles of impeachment and appointed 11 of its members to serve as the managers of the prosecution in the trial, including Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, and Representative Joseph Nicholson, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, who had worked on the draft impeachment articles. Meanwhile, the Senate had to work out the procedure for the trial. Back in episode 2.6, we discussed the first federal official to be impeached, Senator William Blount, Democratic-Republican from Tennessee. Though Blount was impeached, he was not tried by the Senate. Rather, they voted to expel him from the body. Thus, the trial for Judge Pickering would be the first impeachment trial conducted by the Senate. And as with any new procedure, there were tons of questions and plenty of debate. One of the questions brought up by Federalist Senators was that three current Senators had actually been members of the House when Pickering's impeachment was voted on. 
Did this mean that they were disqualified from serving as judges in the trial, quote, on the common law principle that the accuser cannot try his own cause? Senator Adams put forward resolutions on January 4th to disqualify the three senators in question, but the Senate declined to take up Adams's resolution and decided to go ahead with the three acting as judges just like the other senators. As Senator James Jackson, Democratic-Republican from Georgia, noted, if that precedent was set, it may be that in a future Congress, there may not be enough judges to constitute a two-thirds majority of the Senate to convict for the large number that were disqualified from serving. Speaking of, would this trial be conducted like a regular trial, and would the senators have to take, quote, the usual oath to do justice according to the law? Despite being a Democratic-Republican, Senator William Cock of Tennessee realized that the arguments against Pickering were really focused on the fact that he was mentally incapable of serving as a federal judge, and Cock saw this as being inconsistent with the idea of, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors being the grounds for impeachment and removal. As Cock noted, quote, I know of no law that makes derangement criminal. Still, the Senate rejected Cox's proposals for taking an alternate path and instead set up the procedure like a court of law, quote, subject to judicial rule and custom. In January 1804, with Vice President Aaron Burr presiding over the proceedings, the Senate organized itself as a court and the House managers came into the chamber to present the Articles of Impeachment. Though none of the four articles directly mention a mental incapacity, the words that were used did, according to historian Lynn Turner, quote, preclude insanity and predicate a rational appreciation of cause and effect. After nine days of deliberation, the Senate sent its sergeant-at-arms to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to present Judge Pickering with an order to appear before the impeachment court on March 2nd. In the meantime, senators from both parties settled into their respective stances. Though President Jefferson himself had suggested that the definition of misdemeanor should be expanded to, quote, cover all cases of misbehavior where criminal intent was not involved, the Democratic-Republicans in the Senate doggedly stuck to a more narrow definition and tried to make the case fit the definition. Again from Turner, quote, by confusing insanity with criminal misbehavior, they i.e. the Democratic-Republicans, also wiped out the line between good administration and politics and made any word or deed which a political majority might think objectionable the excuse for impeachment and removal from office. Likewise, Federalist senators constructed their arguments around the idea, quote, that acts justifying impeachment also had to be indictable, and sent letters to organized Federalists back in New England to oppose Pickering's impeachment. At noon on March 2, 1804, the first federal impeachment trial in American history began, but the proceedings were quickly disrupted by Senator Adams, who yet again brought up his resolutions from January 4th and urged that the three senators who had been in the House at the time the impeachment vote was called be disqualified from serving as judges. Two of the senators, in order to keep the peace, agreed, but the third, an old friend that we haven't heard from in a while, Senator Samuel Smith, Democratic-Republican from Maryland. Yes, that same Samuel Smith who served as acting Secretary of the Navy until his brother Robert took the post. Senator Smith spoke up and declared, quote, that a false sense of delicacy should never prevent him from doing his duty and cast his vote against Adams's motion. The motion lost by a vote of 8-4 to 20 against. With that matter settled, the 11 House managers were called in for the prosecution and Judge Pickering was summoned as the defense. However, Pickering was not there. Instead, 
Vice President Burr announced that he had been given a letter from former Representative Robert Goodloe Harper, Federalist from South Carolina. In the letter, Harper explained, quote, that he appeared not as counsel for the defendant, whose insanity made him incapable of employing counsel, but as agent for Pickering's son. An appeal from Pickering's son, Jacob Pickering, was then read, which basically said, quote, that in spite of his condition, it could be proved that the judge had not, as charged in the impeachment, given an erroneous judgment or denied a fair appeal, and that the fourth article relative to Pickering's moral character was unjust. Pickering's son then requested, quote, a postponement of the trial until such time as the judge might be able to travel or a proper demonstration of his condition be prepared. Burr admitted Harper to appear before the court, and the lawyer proceeded to reiterate his position as an agent for Jacob Pickering, not counsel for Judge John Pickering. Burr agreed to his continuing, quote, in that capacity, and Harper was about to request a postponement when an uproar came from where the house managers were sitting. Representative Nicholson objected to Harper being allowed to proceed, quote, in this anomalous capacity. Another manager, Representative Caesar Rodney, Democratic-Republican from Delaware, introduced, quote, the legal argument that until the respondent appeared in court, either in person or by attorney, there was no trial. The court must order a default and then determine what the proper procedure might be. Burr turned the question over to the court, and the Senate opted to adjourn to a committee room in order to figure out how to proceed. After an hour or so of debate, and seeing no resolution coming anytime soon, the Senate agreed to end the proceedings for the day and continue to debate what to do. It ended up taking three days for them to come to a consensus, and in those three days, the Senators basically fell into three camps in the debate. For the Federalists, they were determined to acquit no matter what, and argued, quote, that the court must first try the question of insanity, for if the judge was insane, he could not even have had notice of the trial, and there was no case. A group of Democratic Republicans were equally as determined to convict Pickering and scoffed that, if mental incapacity was a bar to proceeding with the impeachment, anyone who was impeached would have their, quote, friends come and pretend he was mad. Another group of Democratic Republicans, though, quote, were unwilling to condemn an insane man without even hearing evidence of his insanity. Back and forth, this third group went with proposals of what could be done to move the proceedings forward. Senator Robert Wright, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, proposed that the court assign Harper as Judge Pickering's counsel and have him, quote, give evidence of insanity under a plea of not guilty. Senator Worthington proposed hearing the, quote, evidence without counsel. Still others questioned the very nature of the impeachment court. Maybe they could just consider this a civil case rather than a criminal one. Or maybe the court was just a court of inquiry. Ultimately, by a vote of 18 to 12, With the moderate Democratic Republicans joining with the Federalists in the vote, the Senate agreed to hear Harper's evidence. When the court proceedings resumed and the decision was announced, Representative Nicholson rose once more and said that, while the House managers were ready to make arguments in support of the impeachment articles, they, quote, did not consider themselves under any obligation to discuss preliminary questions with unauthorized third parties. Thus, all 11 House managers stood and hightailed it back over to the House chamber. There, they put forward a motion of support for their action, but were soon forced to withdraw it as, quote, the House recalled that the Senate had full constitutional authority to determine its own mode of conducting trials. For the House to interfere with that 
would be to undermine their authority. Despite the dramatic display of the House managers, Harper was able to proceed before the impeachment court. He gave depositions from three physicians, including one who was a member of the House of Representatives, Samuel Tenney, Federalist from New Hampshire. He presented circuit court records attesting that Pickering's mental state, quote, had been considered a disability by the court in 1801. Indeed, it should be noted that under the Judiciary Act of 1801, the entire impeachment process would have been a moot point as the circuit courts created under that act allowed those courts to appoint one of the circuit judges, quote, to exercise the functions of any district judge who became incapacitated. And in April 1801, circuit court judge Jeremiah Smith had been appointed to take over Pickering's duties. However, as we saw back in episode 3.8, Democratic Republicans had made that act's repeal a priority after Jefferson's inauguration. And with its repeal, the district court was gone and Judge Pickering was back on the bench. The court records, however, clearly showed why Pickering had been replaced by Judge Smith. After presenting his evidence and making a last appeal for a postponement of the impeachment proceedings, Harper withdrew from the chamber. Now that the elephant in the room was acknowledged, the Democratic-Republican senators united once more, and with a vote of 19 to 8, agreed to proceed with the trial. Thus, the House managers returned to the chamber to present their evidence and call their witnesses. As Turner notes, quote, Since no representative of the accused was present to cross-examine them, the witnesses reveled in a freedom which would have been denied them in a regular court. They were allowed to hear and confirm each other's testimony. In the statements they made, it was clear that the witnesses had been prepared to avoid mention of Judge Pickering's mental state and instead focus on his being intoxicated while presiding over court proceedings. Indeed, some of the witnesses went so far as to, quote, declare that his insanity had been produced by habitual use of ardent spirits. In another odd departure from standard court proceedings, the two senators from New Hampshire, Simeon Olcott and William Plumer, both Federalists, were invited, quote, to give evidence in the case. Having two of the judges presiding over the trial also serving as witnesses, was highly irregular and ethically unsound. But hey, why not? It's not like anything else with this trial has been usual. The two senators attempted to speak on Pickering's behalf, but in Senator Plumer's assertion, quote, that Pickering's insanity was the cause of his intemperance, some of the Democratic-Republican senators who had been on the fence instead saw this as proof that the witnesses' statements that his drinking had caused his mental impairment were accurate. After Olcott and Plumer spoke, the House managers wrapped up their case, and it was now up to the Senate to determine how to proceed. Vice President Burr, realizing how things were going to go down and not wanting to offend Federalists who may support him in his future political endeavors, claimed that he was needed at home immediately and turned over the presiding chair to Senator Jesse Franklin, Democratic-Republican from North Carolina. Meanwhile, Senator John Brown, Democratic-Republican from Kentucky, still uneasy over the idea of convicting a man who hadn't committed a crime, asked to be given a leave of absence for the rest of the session. With Brown's departure, it was clear to the Federalist senators that the possibility of a last-minute rescue for Judge Pickering was fading. Senator Uriah Tracy, Federalist from Connecticut, put forward a resolution to postpone the impeachment proceedings until the next congressional session in order to compel Judge Pickering to appear before the court but this resolution was quickly defeated. This defeat, however, did not dissuade Senator Samuel White, Federalist from Delaware, to put forward, quote, 
a long resolution which stated the reasons why a postponement should be voted. White's resolution got him into a back-and-forth with Senator Wilson Carey Nicholas, Democratic-Republican from Virginia. But finally, White's resolution was defeated, and a motion was passed by a vote of 20 to 9 to vote on Pickering's conviction the following Monday. That Sunday, there was some last-minute planning occurring on the Federalist side. At the prompting of Senator Timothy Pickering, Federalist from Massachusetts, who I should mention is not noted anywhere as being of any relation to Judge Pickering, Senator Adams spent the day drafting a protest to the proceedings of the impeachment trial as part of an idea by the Federalists, quote, to refuse voting upon the impeachment charges and to appeal to the public. Ultimately, though, Adams's work was for naught, as the plan was abandoned. Indeed, it seemed that as Monday drew ever closer, the Federalists were resigned to what they knew was going to happen. As Senator Plumer wrote that day, quote, Tomorrow, no doubt, an insane man will be convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors. There is nothing here to induce me to tarry much longer, either as it respects myself or my country. I fondly hope I shall live to see the righteous separated from the wicked by a geographical line. True policy demands it. Remember those last two lines, dear listener. We will be expanding on that. For now, though, let's see the story of Judge Pickering through. On Monday, March 12, 1804, after a failed last-minute attempt by Senator White to focus the decision in on whether Pickering was guilty, quote, of high crimes and misdemeanors, which might induce some wavering Democratic-Republican senators to acquit, the vote was called, and by a vote of 20-6, John Pickering became the first federal official in the United States to be removed from office under the impeachment process. Democratic-Republicans, however, were determined that he wouldn't be the last. Though we'll go into the details in a future episode, on that same date, March 12, 1804, a report put together by a House committee, quote, appointed to inquire into the official conduct of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase was presented to the House with its recommendation for impeachment. And the House approved the report, a crucial step in proceeding with Chase's impeachment. The timing of this vote was meant by the Democratic-Republican leadership to be a clear signal to Federalists that they were ready to challenge the Federalist domination of the judicial branch. To the Federalist, it seemed like the last foundation on which they had built their hopes of saving the nation from the menace of Jefferson and his supporters was being chipped away. While some fell into despair, others saw an opportunity to build something new, something stronger. If the United States wouldn't look out for its own best interest, some Federalists began to question whether New England should take matters in its own hands in order to secure their interest. That's right. As Senator Plumer wrote in his letter, some Federalists began to think that a line should be drawn between New England and the rest of the U.S. Next time, we'll discuss the secession plot of 1804 in an episode I'd like to call A Plotting We Will Go. To wrap up this episode, I'd like to give special thanks again to my husband Alex for providing the English version of our intro quote. He supports this podcast in so many ways and is an integral part of team presidencies, so I can never thank him enough. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for their graciously allowing us to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for our intro and outro music for this series. If you haven't listened to their music yet, I have a link to their site on the website for presidencies. I've listened to their albums a number of times while working on scripts for the podcast, as it's great for getting me in the zone to write about the Jefferson presidency. I'd also like to do a shout-out to our patrons, 
Michelle, Kara, Scott, and in particular, our newest patron, Matthew. Thanks to the generosity of our patrons, the monthly podcast hosting costs are paid, I'm able to obtain access to new resources, and we can continue our journey through presidential history on firmer financial footing. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast as a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash presidencies and sign up. If you'd like to support the podcast but can't commit to a monthly donation, I've got you covered there as well. You can go to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com, and there you'll find information on the various ways that you can support this podcast. Ratings and reviews are a great way to show your support. For just a minute of your time, you can help folks looking for a new podcast know why they should listen to this one. To that end, I wanted to highlight a couple of reviews that came in recently. On Apple Podcasts, there's a new five-star review that came in from number one, Curtis. The subject line of the review was, A Great Show, and read as follows, quote, The Presidencies of the United States podcast is very interesting and informative. It's very detailed, and if you want to learn some history, I definitely recommend taking a listen. I also had a five-star review come in on Podchaser from Kara, which read as follows, quote, This is a wonderful podcast to dive into American history, and especially the early years. The host is knowledgeable and presents the facts with great detail in a fun and memorable way. Equal parts scholarly and entertaining way to learn about history. Thanks so much to Kara, Curtis, and all of you who have left a review for the podcast. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to me, you can send an email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can connect with me on social media. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'm glad to have you on this journey through presidential history, and I look forward to spending some more time with you next episode. Until then, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.